And we're back uh, with you again. Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, February 2nd, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dorothy Hockenberg and myself, Jim Hoffman. And here's our first story from Dorothy. Okay, from Scott County, Juvenile Justice Systems to Form Council. This is by Sarah Watson from the Quad City Times. Scott County's juvenile justice systems are forming an advisory council made up of people and families with experience with its detention programs. The advisory council is part of a statewide push for more formalized youth and family engagement, said Jeremy Kaiser, the director of the Scott County Youth Justice and Rehabilitation Center. Scott County's youth and family engagement team is made up of people employed by the YJRC and the 7th Judicial District's Juvenile Court Services and focused on planning engagement activities. One of these is forming an advisory council with community members with lived experiences in the local juvenile justice system who would meet quarterly to advise the YJRC and the 7th Judicial District, Kaiser said. Kaiser told the Scott County Board of Supervisors the engagement team had already recruited six families who are interested and excited to join. The plan is to meet with them quarterly to solicit feedback, Kaiser told the Scott County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. You know what went well, what didn't go well? What did you learn? What can we get better at? To ultimately to make sure that they feel heard and that they have a voice in decisions that are made with our programs and services and ultimately to become better at what it is that we do. These community members have the opportunity to be compensated with a stipend through decategorization funds for attending quarterly meetings, Kaiser said. The meetings will not be public because of the confidential and sensitive nature of the items discussed, Kaiser wrote in an email. Other engagement plans are to attend more community events and conduct outreach, Kaiser told the Scott County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. A third prong that the youth and family engagement team is looking at is recruiting credible messengers, people who aren't correctional employees and are credible in their communities who can help with conversations and building trust in a community, Kaiser said. Construction of new YJRC delayed. The new Youth Justice and Rehabilitation Center under construction on Tremont Avenue is a few months behind schedule, Kaiser said. Previously, officials anticipated its construction to be completed sometime in the spring of this year. Construction began in October of 2022. But because of what Kaiser called some unforeseen delays, the new YJRC facility construction is now expected to be completed this fall. In other business, County Board denies Riverstone rezoning request. 
the Scott County Supervisors on Thursday denied a request from the Riverstone Group to rezone 75 acres just east of the Davenport Municipal Airport for a recycled yard for excavated concrete and asphalt. The proposed zoning was opposed by the airport, the city of Davenport, and several adjacent property owners. Aerial imagery of the county. This year, Scott County plans to take new aerial imagery of the county, which is used in county land records and the county's geographic information system, that's GIS. Aerials were taken last in 2019, during the major flooding that spring. The county supervisors approved Thursday a contract with Surdex Corporation for $65,305 for updated aerial imagery and related services. Thank you, Dorothy. And uh, I'm going to share a story. Uh, it's entitled Cheering the Storm. Uh, shows a bunch of uh, young uh, uh, elementary school students uh, in the stands cheering. Uh, this written by Gretchen Teske. Thousands of students pack vibrant arena for Education Day. The Quad City Storm gained a few thousand fans on Thursday, and most of them were shorter than a hockey stick. Thousands of kids from the Quad Cities area packed into Vibrant Arena at the Mark to celebrate Education Day during a special 10 a.m. game against the Evansville Thunderbolts. To keep the field trip educational, students learned about the science of hockey the hometowns of the athletes, and how to say Go Storm in both French and Swedish. The game set a franchise record of 6,918 fans, of which 5,500 were students, a Thursday press release from the team said. An entire section of the lower bowl was filled with kids, wearing green and cheering before the game even started. Sitting among them was Eugene Field, uh, fourth grade teacher uh, Sally Heine, who said her school brought about 230 students to the game. Thursday marked the second year for the Storm's Education Day celebration and the school's second appearance. Heine said getting out of the classroom and into the community allowed the third through sixth grade students in attendance a chance to exercise some of the skills they have learned in school. One of the things we've talked about is we are leaders in our school and this is an opportunity to practice our leader habits by representing ourselves and our school well, she said. Some of these students have their jerseys on and other students have never been in this building before. Heine said she polled her students and asked if they would rather be watching a game or back in the classroom. Based on the ghost storm chants coming from her section, the answer was clear. Sitting below them was a group of students from North Scott Junior High who were making their first appearance at the event. Math teacher Matt 
Harrison, stood over a group that enjoyed their complimentary lunches before the game began. About 75% of the 250 students in attendance from his school had been to a game before, he said, getting a chance to get the students out of the classroom and experience something in their own uh, backyard. That was the same sentiment Bowlesburg elementary teacher Madison Miller had as she sat among her kindergarten class. Nearly the entire school showed up for the game, she said, something students have been excited for uh, about uh, for uh, several weeks. The East Moline School is in a Title I district where many students don't normally have the opportunity to get out and experience extracurriculars, she said. Swapping a day in the classroom for a day of new experiences was completely worth it. These kids have never experienced anything like this before, she said. Access to games was a point uh, fourth grade teacher Erica Orr made as well. Her students at Riverdale Elementary are in a rural area and don't always get opportunities to experience something new like hockey. While the day was billed as an education day, she felt it was a great way to give students a break from the classroom to recharge and have some fun. It's great to promote mental health. Not everything has to be about education all the time, she said, but they are learning a new sport which some of them have never been acclimated to. Quad City Times Local, Alice Cooper scheduled for Grandstand Concert Series by Gannon Hannevold. The Mississippi Valley Fair announced the final act on its Grandstand lineup for 2024 on Wednesday. Alice Cooper, the School's Out singer and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, will play the penultimate days of the Mississippi Valley Fair's Concert Series in August rounding out a lineup of other rock, country, and hip-hop acts. On Tuesday, July 30, Thomas Rhett will perform. Rhett's hits, Die a Happy Man, Unforgettable, Look What God Gave Her, and Marry Me have all reached over 200 million streams on Spotify. On Wednesday, July 31, the grandstand stage will feature two acts, a reckless country rocker, Cole Wetzel, and bombastic country pop star, Priscilla Block. The lineup pivots from country to hip-hop on Thursday, with crunk pop icon T-Pain billed to perform on August 1. The Florida rapper, with his signature auto-tune sound, has amassed Grammy Awards, billboard-topping hits, and collaborations with names like Rihanna and Lil Wayne. He also performed in Moline with Sujia Boy in 2007. On August 2, Poison frontman Brett Michaels is billed in what will likely be nothing but a good time. Michaels has had hits with both Poison and his solo career. He's also been a staple of reality TV, appearing in The Celebrity Apprentice, The Masked Singer, and his own show, Rock of Love. Cooper will play the 
Saturday night set on August 3. The rocker will bring his signature blend horror theatrics and pop rock to Quad Cities for the coveted weekend slot. Cooper performed at Vibrant Arena at the Mark in 2018. Closing out the Grandstand series is Scotty McCreary, once a boy wonder on American Idol, and now an established country pop star. His latest record, Same Truck, has two certified gold singles, joining his already established hits, Five More Minutes and This Is It. Entry to the Grandstand and the Fair as a whole can be purchased with a Mississippi Valley Fair Fun Card, with early bird prices at $105 until the end of June, when they will increase to $130. Fans wanting to get a closer look to the action can get a Mississippi Valley Fair Pepsi One Card, which sells for $150 and include a a commemorative laminate and early entrance to the concert. Thank you, Dorothy. And uh, we have an article now, uh, uh, local news, uh, DeWitt Native Pins Book About Anxiety. This written by uh, Gannon Hannibold, a reporter for the Quad City Times. Uh, says author, author donating portion of proceeds to charities. Um, when Savannah Necker Levesque was diagnosed with anxiety at eight years old, she was relieved. As a child who didn't really understand the complexities of their emotions, it was a great thing to finally be like, yep, you have anxiety, she said. The next wave of relief came when she was 10 and her family adopted a Chihuahua Yorkie puppy named Bella taking care of a dog who got into constant shenanigans, helped Necker Levesque process her anxiety. Now 27 and working at Necker Jewelers, Jewelers, her family's business, Necker Levesque decided it was time to share her journey in the form of a children's book, Bella, The Best Companion, released on Amazon in December. The DeWitt native says it's a culmination of 12 years of work. I started drafting the original story when I was 15 years old in high school, Spanish uh, class, she said. It took up until this point to have the courage, I guess, to run with my idea and finally publish it. Necker Levesque is um, hoping her children's book, which has been illustrated by Bijan Samader, uh, an artist she connected with through a company online, will allow parents to discuss anxiety with their kids. The first-time author said that a book like this would have meant a lot to her as a girl when fairy tales and other children's books often didn't help her feel uh, seen. Reading was a huge part of my childhood, she said, but I never had a book that I could really relate to. The book follows a little girl, Marie, who gets a small puppy named Bella. Necker Levesque calls it her literal life story. As Bella gets into more and more hijinks, 
Marie learns to cope with her anxiety. That's how it was for Necker Levesque as a kid. She spe uh, spe specifically was anxious about germs as a kid, but her bond with a messy mutt made that close to impossible. It sounds so silly, but when you have a tiny puppy who gets into literally everything, you can't be scared anymore, she said. She kind of helped me overcome some of those things. Outside of summoning the courage to write this story in the first place, Necker Levesque says the toughest part of publishing Bella, the best companion, was getting the story up for uh, sale online. She was nervous when it finally released, but called it a therapeutic journey to finally get the story out. The initial feedback has been positive, with the book carrying the average rating of five stars on Amazon. Thankful that there is now a book to help children understand anxiety and mental health instead of struggling, wrote one. What a great way to bring up a conversation such as mental health with your child, wrote another. Necker Levesque said she isn't expecting to turn a profit from the book sales. She's donating a portion of the proceeds from every book sale to mental health organizations nationwide. For the past two months, her clarity of voice has uh, been <clears throat> uh, Foster's Voice, a uh, suicide awareness nonprofit based in New uh, East Moline. Beyond the financial reinvestment, Necker Levesque says she's excited to further the conversation around mental health. There weren't a lot of children's books out there that were talking about mental health, she said. Nobody wants to talk about those things with their kids because they seem so scary. So having a word like anxiety in a book, I was a little nervous about how people would respond to it. But overall, it's been a really positive experience. Okay, Democratic Lawmakers to Hold Forum by Sarah Watson. Democratic lawmakers representing Scott County are asking for public input on education legislation in the State House this session, including on the governor's controversial plans for area education agencies. The forum will be at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 3, at the Eastern Avenue branch of the Davenport Public Library, 6000 Eastern Avenue. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a plan, which she amended this week, to give school districts the choice to keep contracts for special education services with area education agencies or to contract with a third party likely a private company. Reynolds argues the changes will lead to more accountability and better results for Iowa students with disabilities. But advocates worry the changes will fracture special education services in the state and disadvantage smaller districts without enough funds to contract out for services if larger districts flee AEAs. The governor's bill met some resistance from Republican lawmakers in both the House and the Senate Wednesday. 
the chair of the House Education Committee declined to advance the bill out of a subcommittee Wednesday, wanting further conversations before taking action. Senate Republicans advanced the bill but pledged to make changes as it moves forward. State Representatives Ken Crokin and Monica Kurth and State Senator Cindy Winkler, all Democrats from Davenport, plan to attend the forum on Saturday. In a news release announcing the event, the lawmakers also expressed concern about a bill, SSB 3092, that would allow schools to hire chaplains. Thank you, Dorothy. And uh, I'm going to share this uh, coming from the Iowa legislature. GOP lawmakers unveil tax plan. Proposal seeks to eliminate the state income tax. This written by Tom Barton of the uh, Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. <clears throat> Iowa House and Senate Republicans rolled out a new proposal to provide a glide path to eliminating the state individual income tax. Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican from Wilton, and Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, filed legislation Thursday that would put Iowa on a path to eliminate the individual income tax and protect the tax relief measures Republicans have passed. Kaufman and Dawson led the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee in the House and Senate. We have heard time and time again from our colleagues in both the House and Senate, as well as Iowans across the state, that we want to get Iowa to a zero income tax rate. And we believe these proposals will responsibly get us to that point and set our state up for confirmed continued success and stability for years to come, Kaufman said. Senate Study Bill 3141 would accelerate current income tax cuts lawmakers passed in 2022 that gradually reduced rates until tax year 2026 when most Iowan workers will pay a 3.9 state income tax. <clears throat> Excuse me. The bill would lower the rates to 3.65 by tax year 2027. It also would have Iowa Public Employees Retirement System start managing the state's more than $3.5 billion taxpayer relief fund. Profits earned from investing that money would be used to ratchet down the state income tax rate over time. Under the proposal, the new trust fund that would be created would receive an initial $2.6 billion transfer from the taxpayer relief fund. It would have an oversight board and contract through IPERS to invest those dollars. Once the trust became uh, operable, 5% a year would be transferred to the new income tax elimination fund used to help lower and eventually eliminate the income tax while assisting with budget stabilization as rates are cut, the two lawmakers told reporters. 
If the trust fund has sufficient dollars and sales tax growth hits a certain trigger, the income tax rates will be automatically reduced. We're doing something that everyday Iowans do for their retirement. Everyday businesses here in the state do, Ta Dawson told reporters. We're using the money, growing it for something bigger. Kaufman said the proposal responsibly achieves Republicans' long-term goal to eliminate the individual income tax and put Iowa on a stronger path to prosperity. Dawson said the plan ensures state government can meet its spending obligations even as the state reduces income tax revenue. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's a responsible glide path to zero, Dawson said, as opposed to some massive sales tax increase or eliminating a bunch of tax exemptions out there. Both lawmakers, though, described the proposal as a long-term plan uh, meant to be a starting point for continued conversation. How quickly this bill happens, this is the beginning, Kaufman said. And so this will happen as quickly as people are ready for it. And I think you'll find out as this gets talked about, you're going to find a high appetite for Iowans to want to do that. <clears throat> Kaufman and Dawson also plan to advance a proposed constitutional amendment, Senate Joint Resolution 14, that would require a two-thirds vote rather than a simple majority in the legislature to raise any state tax. Lawmakers considered but failed to advance the constitutional amendment last year, but noting this year it's become a priority of the two chairmen. In the near term, Republican lawmakers say they're focused this session on passing the legislation, accelerating the already approved income tax cuts. They said they intend to file a bill this spring to do just that, but are writing, waiting on a March report on state tax revenue and may use some elements of the tax reduction plan Governor Reynolds introduced three weeks ago. Reynolds, in her annual Condition of the State Address, called for accelerating state income tax cuts, landing at a 3.5% rate for most Iowa workers next year. The proposal would reduce Iowan state income taxes and thus limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first uh, five years. Republicans say the state can afford more tax reductions with a $2.1 billion general fund budget surplus projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, full emergency accounts, and $3.7 billion in the taxpayer relief uh, fund. Iowa lost $57 million in tax revenue in 2022-23 and will lose close to $5 billion over the next five years, about 7.8% of the state's general fund, according to a report by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. State policymakers nationwide have embarked on a tax-cutting spree over the past three years using the cover of temporary budget surpluses stemming from robust federal aid in response to COVID-19 and the economic recovery that followed, the report states. 
The tax cuts, most of which are both permanent and tilted toward wealthy households and corporations, will weaken state revenues by larger and uh, growing amounts over time, limiting these states' ability to maintain support for schools and other vital public services or make new investments that can strengthen the economy and promote opportunities. House and Senate Democratic leaders said they are concerned that further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with no benefits. House Democrats on Thursday, meanwhile, unveiled a legislative package to lower costs and raise wages for Iowans. The package of bills would gradually raise Iowa's minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2026, clear the list of more than 20,000 Iowas with disabilities on the home and community-based services waiver wait list, make a one-year pilot program allowing child care workers to apply for state child care assistance for their own children permanent and available statewide, provide a subsidy for child care workers who need child care for their own kids so they can afford to stay on the job. Expand and extend Iowa's tax-free holiday in August from two days to two weeks. Add school and art supplies, instructional materials, musical instruments to the list of tax-free exemptions and raise the cap on clothing items from $100 to $250 so Iowans can purchase work uniforms, work boots, and other items. And now I see it's time for our obituaries. Ronald J. Nason, born January 16, 1939, died January 30, 2024. Ronald J. Nason, 85, died on Tuesday, January 30th at his home. He was born on January 16, 1939, in Iowa, the son of Thomas and Wilma Henning Neeson. He graduated from DeWitt Community Schools in 1957, Wartburg College in 1961, and the Madison School of Banking in 1963. He married Sharon Madsen in June 1964, later divorcing. On July 20, 1974, he was united in marriage to the love of his life, Miriam Platts, in Waterloo. He was employed as a national bank examiner with the U.S. Comptroller of the Currency from 1963 to 1982. He then became the Vice President of Commercial Lending for First National Bank in Moline in 1982 until his retirement in 1996. When he was younger, Ron loved playing high school and college sports, football, baseball, and track. In his later years, he enjoyed watching his grandchildren play sports and participate in show choir. He was their biggest fan and encourager. He was most known for his piano playing and ability to play along with anything by ear. He shared his talent with a variety of community groups over the years. He also volunteered as a mentor for the Waterloo Schools. 
He grew up knowing Jesus as his Savior and raised his children to follow his example. Family was his first priority. He loved with everything he had, and he was loved back the same. He will be deeply missed and be forever loved. Ron is survived by his wife Miriam, daughter Jennifer, husband Jeff of Dubuque, Iowa, and their children Cody, Rachel, Alexis, and Aaron. Son Eric, wife Kim of Westminster, Colorado, and their children Jonathan, Mitchell, and Ben. Son Michael and wife Jeff of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Daughter Krista, husband Josh of College Station, Texas, and their children. Brandon, Nathan, and his spouse Sydney and Lauren great-grandchildren Emmett, Jonah, and Winona, and sister Carol Goodwin of Omaha, Nebraska. He was preceded in death by his parents and a sister, Norma. Memorial services will be 11 a.m. Monday, February 5th at Prairie Lakes Church in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, February 4th, 2024 at the church. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. In Bluegrass, Lowell, Tennyson, June 15, 1942 to January 30, 2024. Lowell, Tennyson, 81, of Bluegrass, Iowa, passed away unexpectedly at his residence on January 30, 2024. The family will receive guests from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, a funeral service will take place at Wirtz Funeral Home at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd. Lowell will be laid to rest at Bluegrass Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Online condolences and fond memories may be expressed at www.wirtz.com. Uh, dot com, Lowell was born on June 15, 1942 to parents Mildred Stirr and Lois Tennyson in Davenport, Iowa. He graduated from Davenport High School and served in the United States Navy. Lowell worked for 31 years at the Rock Island Arsenal as an equipment specialist. He retired in 1993. It was there at the arsenal that he made dear friends and met the woman who would become his wife. On Valentine's Day in 1986, Lowell married the love of his life, Sandra Schroeder. Together, they shared in the many ups and downs of life and reveled in each other's company through it all. Among the activities they enjoyed was camping, genealogy, and ham radio county hunting. Lowell's call was KBOBA. He was a member of Legion Post 711, NMLRA, Mobile Radio Club, and Amateur Radio. Lowell enjoyed reading books and expanding his knowledge whenever he could. Those left to carry on his memory include his wife of nearly 38 years, Sandra Tennyson, sister-in-law Judy Schroeder, brother-in-law Alan, wife Nora Schroeder, daughter Julie Tennyson, 
two very special nephews, Brian, wife Carrie Schroeder, and Stephen, wife Vicki Schroeder. Grand-nephews Brandon and Ryan, grand-nieces Carlin and Bailey. Great-grand-nephews Nathan and Aiden, and great-grand-nieces Natalie and Claire. Lowell was preceded in death by his parents, two children, Janelle Tennyson Marshall and Scott Lewis Tennyson, and his brother-in-law, Wayne E. Schroeder. Thank you, Dorothy. Um, and I, I want to give you the pending um, obituaries, um, uh, the deaths. Norman E. Bunn, 88, of Davenport. Kelly M. Collins, 36, of Davenport. Keith E. Markle, 64, of Davenport. Donna Evans, 89, of DeWitt. Crystal Showmaker, 52, of Rock Falls, Illinois. <clears throat> Cherry Bauman, 79, of Moline. Joan uh, Joanne DeGarmo, 59, of Rock Island. Bruce Robert Letterman, 65, of Davenport. James W. Vito, 81, of Moline. And Branch Norris, 77, of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And now we turn our attention to the uh, opinion page of the Quad City Times. And we have an opinion written here by Catherine Rampell. She's a political columnist for Washington Post Writers Group. House Republicans keep fumbling immigration. House Republicans in recent weeks have blown up an immigration deal negotiated by their own party in the Senate and urged President Biden to adopt border measures that courts have found illegal. A cynic might say this is all theater, that Republicans led by former President Donald Trump want to keep immigration problems going through the election. But did anyone consider a simpler explanation? That Republicans have no clue how our immigration system works. Republican lawmakers have been holding up aid for Ukraine and Israel for months while seeking concessions on unrelated immigration measures. Yet after Democrats finally cried uncle, House Republicans said, oh, just kidding, they don't want this deal after all. House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, and others now claim Biden doesn't need new legislation to crack down on the border. Instead, they allege Biden can use his existing authority to reduce immigration by reviving all the executive actions that Trump had put into place. If Biden wants our conference to view him as a good-faith negotiator, he can start with the stroke of a pen, Johnson said. There are a few problem, problems with this claim. First, Biden has already issued more than 500 immigration-related executive actions, more than Trump announced over four years, according to the Mi Migration Policy Institute. Biden has arguably exhausted the extent of his presidential authority, and so far his measures haven't stemmed the tide 
of border crossings. Second, if Biden hasn't revived Trump's specific policies as Republicans urge him to do, that's largely because so many Trump policies were found to be illegal. Of the 35 major Trump area immigration agency actions that faced legal challenges, 33, 94%, did not survive litigation. That is, either the court ruled against the relevant agency or the agency withdrew the action after being sued. These numbers are from the New York University Institute for Policy Integrity's Regulatory Challenge Database. Even when Republican-appointed judges presided over such cases, Trump immigration actions were unsuccessful 90% of the time. To be fair, one specific Trump-era program that Johnson wants to revive, informally known as Remain in Mexico, is the subject of legal cases that are still working their way through the courts. But any final court decision on this policy might not matter much. Why? It's unclear whether this program ever effectively deterred unlawful border crossings, although it did expose desperate uh, migrants to rape, kidnap, torture, and other dangers. More important, the Mexican government has said it would not cooperate if the United States were to reboot the program, regardless of what U.S. courts decide. Johnson has also demanded that Biden begin renewing construction of the border wall. On this policy, Biden's obstacle isn't executive authority, exactly. It's insufficient funding, says Aaron Reichlin Melnick, policy director of the American Immigration Council. Alas, House Republicans appear unlikely to fund it. How do we know? Because last year, the Republican-controlled House passed a different uh, much more draconian and uh, uh, immigration bill known as H.R. 2. This was basically a messaging bill, though lately Johnson has said it's the only immigration-related legislation his chamber would consider. That bill would require Biden to restart wall construction as set down in the fiscal 2019 appropriations bill but it does not give any new funds that would be necessary to build the wall, Reichlin Melnick says. Similarly, Johnson has demanded that Biden end catch and release, which would mean detaining anyone waiting for asylum, uh, waiting for their asylum claim to be heard in court. But there's nowhere near enough funding under current law to provide that number of detention beds. Unsurprisingly, H.R. 2 provides zero new money for this objective either. In other words, the policies that House Republicans claim Biden can adopt with the stroke of a pen are outside his pen's reach, unless Congress passes the bipartisan legislation that these Republicans refuse to consider. Maybe Johnson and his GOP colleagues claim Biden can do things without lawmakers' help 
because they want Biden to look feckless. Maybe they grew so accustomed to Trump's lawlessness that they figure Biden should be willing to cross a line now and then too. But again, there's a reasonably strong case that the problem here is incompetence. After all, this week, House Republicans unveiled articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for his alleged failure on immigration. Unfortunately, these articles complain about measures taken by a completely different government agency, the State Department, which Mayorkas does not control. Oops! Who can tell these cabinet secretaries apart anyway? In Republicans' defense, our immigration system is confusing. Lots of people don't get it. Still, one would hope that politicians paid to understand these things and who have made immigration a centerpiece of their 2024 campaign might try a little bit harder. Turning now to sports, Quad City 4, Evansville 3, storm win in front of record crowd. Education Day draws nearly 7,000 fans. It's by Tom Johnston. With an electric atmosphere created by a nearly full barn Thursday morning, the Quad City storm gave the Education Day crowd plenty to cheer about. In front of a storm record of 6,918, at Vibrant Arena, QC rallied for a 4-3 SBHL victory over visiting Evansville. It was awesome to see that many people in the stands, Michael Moran said of the morning crowd that filled much of the upper bowl seating in the arena with 5,500 of those local students. The storm gave them plenty to cheer about, winning their third straight game and doing so with an offense that has scored 16 goals in those three wins. We had some of our biggest guys out, and once they came back and we had a full roster, we got used to playing with each other again, QC captain Tommy Zico said, referencing the team's November success with a full roster. We are hitting our stride. Thursday's contest wasn't always pretty, but it proved to be effective for the storm especially how they scored their final two goals of the contest in the second period ahead of a scoreless, penalty-free third period. Moran dug a puck out of a scrum and slipped it past Thunderbolts netminder Ty Taylor for a power play goal with 30.4 seconds left in the second period. Three minutes earlier, Seacoast bounced in a puck off Taylor's backside from a weird angle. That's just where I do my best work, in front of the net there, Moran said of his fifth goal of the season. This one stood as the game winner. I was able to get good positioning inside their defenseman. And when Leif Matson has the puck on his stick, good things are going to happen. I just found a good spot and was able to maneuver the puck into the net. The storm also settling into a good spot. Their third straight victory, even QC's season record at 16-16-0-0 and moved it to 32 points. Thursday morning special before a packed house 
served an even greater purpose as the Storm, with injured players Bailey Breakin and Darren McCormick assisting head coach Dave Bizinkinzani, I can't pronounce that, on the bench, jumped into a sixth-place tie with Pensacola. The points also added some distance between them, and eighth-place Evansville, 13-17-2, won 29 points before hosting Huntsville on Friday and Saturday at Vibrant Arena. This was a huge win, Moran said. They were below us in the standings, so any time you can play a team below you in the standings and continue to push them down and move us up, you refer to those as four-point games. It's a huge win for us. But it wasn't easy as the teams played to a 2-2 draw after 20 minutes, and the Thunderbolts bolted to the lead at 5-10 mark, of the second when Benjamin Lindbergh beat QC goalie Brent Moran with a wrister from the right face-off dot. But Cisco's had the equalizer thanks to some scintillating stick work and a nice fake that created just enough of an opening behind Taylor to sneak home the puck. I faked like I was going to skate around the net, Deco said in his seventh goal of the season. I was going to try to shuffle it back against him. I ended up shooting it off his back, and it was just tricked in, which was nice to see. QC's first two goals were just as impressive and much needed after the Thunderbolts jumped to a 1-0 lead just 4.37 seconds into the contest in what turned out to be a busy first period with both teams scoring twice. Nicolo Levesque scored his seventh of the season from finding the back of the net from an odd angle on the boards at the right face-off circle. That came at the 7.33 mark of helpers from Tyler Van Newden, 2, and Flip Virgili, 7. Just short of our four minutes later, Logan Nelson fired his 12th of the campaign, scoring on a wrister from just inside the blue line near the middle of the ice. Moran, 9, and Seiko, 17, were credited with assists as QC went up 2-1. to one. It all helped the Storm win their third straight and send a noisy bunch of young fans back to school happy. We're in a good position where you can get 7,000 people in a rink no matter how old they are. It's awesome, Michael Moran said. I'm hoping they enjoyed themselves today and that we opened up some new minds to hockey. Thank you, Dorothy. And... Uh We've got just a few minutes left here. Time for perhaps one more sports article. Uh, Quincy Tops Alleman. Uh, this written by Samir Mala. The Alleman pioneers ran out of gas when the fourth quarter arrived. In a battle between two of the top three teams in the Western Big Six Conference, the Quincy Blue Devils won decisively 52-30 to Thursday night at Alleman. We knew it was going to be a tough game, Quincy head coach Brad Dance said. Coming here is never easy. Alleman has a heck of a team, so it was going to be one of those types of games. We had to battle for four quarters. Uh, the girls knew that going into it. We played really well in the second half. The Pioneers went 2 for 11. In a fourth quarter, the Alleman players and coaches would like to forget. Quincy started the final frame up by only four points, but hit open look after open look 
to end the game on a 22-4 run. In the second half, our possessions were poor, and Quincy had better possessions than us, Alleman head coach Steve Ford said. We really shared the ball, Dance said. We did a good job finding the open person, and we made some shots. We were 11 for 13 at the free throw line on the night, so that also helps. Quincy freshman Jada Brown led all players with 24 points, mostly on blown Pioneer's defensive coverage in the post. Brown did most of her damage after halftime, scoring 14 of her 24 points on four of six shooting, including one of two beyond the arc. Brown is getting better and she continues to put in work, Dance said. I'm glad I have three more years with her. Brown is a very good player. We just did not guard well against her, Ford said. She was cutting against the screens and we did not have uh, anybody communicating. The pioneers hung in there for the opening three quarters. The first 24 minutes saw eight lead changes, all in the first half, with no lead bigger than eight. For every three-pointer that Alleman hit, Quincy responded with a quality two-point basket. For every three-pointer the Pioneers missed, Quincy countered with a transition two to take the lead back. We played a fairly good first half and had minimal errors, Ford said. We were making, I'll uh, find the next page here. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, here we go. We were making some shots and executing better. Once we got into the paint, it opened our offense up. Alleman sophomore Adeline Voss had a team high 11 points. Her senior point guard, Audrey Erickson, was second on the team with 10 points, but was one of five from long range. As a team, the Alleman offense stalled. The Pioneers could not penetrate the Blue Devils' zone defense that was omnipresent, uh, uh, stalling for open looks and open cutters, which there were none. We got after them, and we knew what we had to do, Dance said. We knew Erickson was capable of scoring, so we extended the zone on them, and we had our post players work inside, so it worked out pretty good for us. Alleman, 24-4, and 8-4 in the conference, had its five-game winning streak snapped, and the Pioneers dropped to fourth place in the WB6. Alleman wraps up the regular season with two more home games on Monday night against Geneseo and against Galesburg uh, next week. We do, not, we do not have much time to bounce back as we have to face Geneseo on Monday and Galesburg thereafter, Ford said. The Quincy Blue Devils, 22-5, and 10-2 in the conference, now comfortably in second in the WB6, have three games left on their schedule. Their next game is against WB6 leading United Township, who is 21-5, 11-1 in the conference on Saturday afternoon. We now have to be ready. We have another tough one on Saturday against UT, uh, he said. And this brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Jim Hoffman. My partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.